I've had an MBU, Dickie. I've tried to solve it. This Operation Madhouse, if you ask me. Thousands dead already. 300 million Hindus and Sikhs want a united India, but many of 100 million Muslims do not. The Muslim minority don't want to be part of India. They want their own country, Pakistan. There's such rancor between the leaders now, it's nigh on impossible to get them in the same room. Well, whatever their differences are, all Indians have one thing in common. What's that? They can't wait to get rid of us. <laughs>Two weeks ago, there was a terrible terrorist attack in the Indian-controlled part of Kashmir. Forty Indian soldiers were killed. In recent days, Mr. Modi has ordered Indian airplanes into Pakistani airspace to bomb targets there in retaliation. An aerial battle ensued. Pakistan and India both claim to have shot down one another's planes. Pakistan captured uh, an Indian pilot. This is the first time since 1971 that planes have been crossing into the airspace of the, of the other country and, and bombing targets within it. But of course, this time around, India and Pakistan both have nuclear weapons, so the situation is that much more dangerous. Pakistan, the land of the pure. Muslims do not want to be reduced to the unequal position of Negroes in America. I assure you, Muslims would never be treated as second-class citizens. But we are a minority of one to four. How can you guarantee that? If you engage with the other leaders, constitutional protection for Muslim citizens can be secured. It is the other leaders who refuse to engage with me. I already have the solution. The creation of an Islamic country, Pakistan. A lot of people in India will see this interview with, with you. What, what message would you like to send the Modi government and the people of India? Surely the number one task of the two governments should be how are we going to reduce poverty? And the way we reduce poverty is by settling our differences through dialogue. And there is only one difference, which is Kashmir. It has to be settled. The Kashmir issue cannot keep on boiling like it is because anything happening in Kashmir through a reaction to the oppression which is taking place in Kashmir, uh, it will be pound off on Pakistan. We would be blamed and tensions would rise as they have arisen in the past. The world moves on. Not as we like it, but it moves. We will have our independence. Let Jinnah have his Pakistan. Yeah. In five years' time, he will be knocking at our door and begging to be part of India again. It is not possible to divide the heart and expect it to work. Gandhiji, how can we reach an agreement with Jinnah if you can't agree with Jawa? Every moment we debate brings more violence. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to the Islamic History Podcast. We are continuing our series on the history of Pakistan. This episode will mostly focus on how 
Islam came to the Indian subcontinent in the first place, and then we'll look at some of the early attempts at Muslims in India to become politically organized, which of course ultimately led to the state of Pakistan. Let's discuss how Islam came to Pakistan in the first place. The first Islamic forces came to the region we now know of as Pakistan during the caliphate of Umar ibn al-Khattab in the year 23 AH, which roughly corresponds to the year 660 CE. These Muslims that came under the caliphate of Umar ibn al-Khattab fought local forces in a region called Makran near modern-day Karachi in southern Pakistan, just off the banks of the Indus River. The Muslims were victorious, but Khalif Umar, he did not want to extend this empire any further. Omar told his forces to stay on their side of the Indus River. 51 years later, a Muslim general named Muhammad ibn Qasim conquered the region east of the Indus River called Sindh, and this resulted in the Muslim conquest of much of the region that we now recognize as modern-day Pakistan. With the exception of Bangladesh, this region that we now know of as Pakistan was the only part of the Indian subcontinent that had a Muslim majority. One of the more important Muslim conquerors to come through the region was a man named Mahmud of Ghazni. This empire became known as the Ghaznavid Empire and he ruled over it from 998 to 1030 CE. The Ghaznavid Empire covered several parts of modern nations such as Iran, Afghanistan, Pakistan of course, Tajikistan, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, and India. This region remained under Muslim control with a large non-Muslim, mostly Hindu majority until the British arrived in the 17th century. The British first arrived in the Indian subcontinent in 1615 as merchants, and this was during the European Age of Exploration, and there were several European powers who fought each other over trading rights in this area. The British and the Dutch, they allied to fight against the Spanish and the Portuguese. Eventually, the British and the Dutch, they were able to drive out the Spanish and the Portuguese, but then they started fighting each other over the same thing. However, by 1799, the Dutch East Indian Company, which represented Dutch interests in the Indian subcontinent, was defunct and they had to leave, and that left the British alone to exploit most of the subcontinent. It was actually the British East India Company that was running things in India. The British East India Company, and sometimes we'll just call it the EIC, the EIC was a private company with a charter from the British government to establish trade in India. And the EIC, it actually acted as a government on its own. It raised its own armies and it ruled the lands it controlled and it even passed laws and it had its own courts. The EIC, of course, was a company and so they made their money by trading goods, particularly 
exploiting the goods and the natural resources of India and selling it off to make profit to their shareholders in England. The EIC established trading posts, which they called factories, mostly along the Indian coast. When these factories became big, they had to hire guards to secure the factories. These guards eventually morphed into a military force. By 1808, the British and the EIC had control over pretty much all of India. We mentioned how the EIC hired local guards. Well, over time, these guards morphed into a military force and actually into an army. And these EIC armies were mostly made of sepoys, which were which was another name for Indian recruits into the EIC army. The East India Company was really not liked in the Indian subcontinent. They taxed local Indians very heavily, and they also confiscated the best lands from the local Indian landlords, and they used lots of various underhanded methods to force Indian feudal lords off of their lands. This land was then sold to British merchants, who then forced the peasants off the land also. Local distrust and discontent and dissatisfaction against the EIC continued to rise, particularly after the Anglo-Afghan War, resulted in the death of many Indian sepoys. But the one incident that really pushed things over the edge for the sepoys were the issuance of new infield rifles. Before these Enfield rifles were issued, the EIC armies had used smoothbore brown Bessie muskets. These new Enfield rifles, they were more accurate, and both weapons used the same method to load ammunition. However, a rumor began to spread amongst the Indian soldiers that the cartridges for these new rifles were greased with pig and cow fat. The pig, of course, was haram or forbidden for the Muslims, and the beef was sacred and also forbidden for the Hindus. Many Sepoy regiments rose up against their British commanders in April 1857. They were upset about a lot of things. They were upset about these new cartridges for these new rifles, but they were also upset about the harsh punishments that some of the British military commanders placed on them. The rebellion continued to spread and eventually got to the capital of New Delhi. The Sepoys needed a leader, and so they promoted Bahadur Shah Zafar, the last Mughal emperor, as the true ruler of India. And at first, Bahadur Shah Zafar did not really want to help the Sepoys in their rebellion against the British. He had no true authority outside of his hometown of Shah Jahanbad. But eventually, he was talked into it and he relented. And when the mutiny was put down, he was imprisoned and exiled. And Bahadur Shah Zafar would be the last Mughal emperor. But even with the rebellion put down, there were changes to come in the Indian subcontinent. For one thing, the EIC was disbanded. India was now ruled by the British crown. And most importantly, Indians were promised the same rights as white British citizens living in India. However, not everyone was happy with the way things were becoming in India. There were lots of Muslims who were frustrated with this new state of affairs. 
They had just witnessed the end of the Mughal Empire, which represented 1,000 years of Muslim rule. Muslims had always been a minority in the Indian subcontinent. Hence, the idea of a democratic India ruled by the majority Hindus was very worrisome to the local Muslim population. The Muslims of India, they reacted to this new state of affairs by rejecting all things British. They refused to learn English. They didn't want to accept British jobs. They refused to wear Western clothing like suits and ties. They also got very suspicious of Western education and they felt that it might corrupt Muslim women. And they were also opposed to modern science and technology, thinking it might lead to atheism. But what the Muslims rejected, the Hindus accepted. They didn't have a problem being ruled by the British because they were just trading one ruler, the Muslims, for another ruler, the British. The Hindus of India gladly learned English. The Hindus, they accepted civil service jobs with the British. They didn't mind sending their kids to secular schools. And with this, the Hindus began to excel in science and technology. And they still managed to hold on to their Hindu beliefs and traditions. Eventually, the Hindus caught up with their former Muslim rulers in every way. One of the most significant areas of disagreement was the use of language in the Indian subcontinent, particularly the languages Urdu and Hindi. Urdu was written in Arabic and it was considered the language of the Muslims of India. Urdu had always been the speech of the elite because the Muslims were the rulers of the Indian subcontinent before the British came along. Hindi, on the other hand, was written in a form of Sanskrit called Dionagi, and it had always been the speech of the peasantry because the Hindus of India had always been the lower class. Most Indians, either Muslim or Hindu, they did not really see Urdu and Hindi as being two separate languages. They instead saw them as two variations of the same language. They had similar grammar rules, but had different vocabularies. The British, however, chose to treat Urdu and Hindi as two separate languages. And this helped to further deepen the divide between Indian Muslims and Indian Hindus. The Muslims of India had to do some soul searching and they reacted to these changes in various different ways. One of the ways they reacted was by building new educational institutions. But one of these new institutions was Darun Ulum Diyaband. Many Muslims believed that they needed a deeper and stronger connection to Islam. One of these men was a man named Maulana Muhammad Qasim Nanatovi, 1832-1880. Maulana Muhammad Qasim was born into a noble family of Islamic scholars, and as a child he had received a classical Islamic education. He had the opportunity to study at a secular university when he got older, but he turned it down to further his Islamic studies. He even took part in the 1857 rebellion. After the fall of the Mughal Empire, he and some of his close friends established Darul Ulum Dioband. 
Darul Ulum means House of Knowledge and is located in the city of Dioband in the state of Uttar Pradesh in northern India. Darul Ulum was established as an Islamic seminary school and its intention was to teach young Muslims traditional Islamic sciences in the hope of preserving Islamic teachings, culture, and traditions in India. Another institution that was a result of this Muslim frustration was Aligarh University. There were some Muslims who disagreed with rejecting all things British. And there were some Muslims who were alarmed and surprised at how quickly the Muslims were being left behind by the Hindus of India. One of these men was a man named Sir Sayyid Ahmed Khan, 1817-1898. Most pictures of Sir Syed Ahmed Khan picture him with a big, white, bushy beard. And he's often shown wearing a red fez and his many medals showing his knighthood. Sir Syed Ahmed Khan was born into a wealthy family with ancient, deep links to the Mughal Empire. As a child, he received both a classical Islamic and a secular education. He, however, believed that Muslims could benefit from Western education and technology, and this belief led him to establish the Mohammedan Anglo-Oriental College in 1875. The Mohammedan Anglo-Oriental College was eventually renamed to Aligarh University in 1920. Like Darul Ulum Deoband, Aligarh University is also located in Uttar Pradesh in northern India. Unlike Darul Ulum, Aligarh University blends both secular and Islamic studies, though it is evident that Islamic studies takes a back seat. However, many of the leading Muslim political figures of India came from Aligarh University. But it would be many years before the Aligarh movement and all of its political ramifications came to bear. In the late 19th century, politics in India was almost non-existent. One man named Alan Hume, who was a retired British civil servant, he was very upset by the apolitical and apathetic attitude of many Indians, and so he decided to organize a local political party. This local political party would become the Indian National Congress, and it was established in 1885. The Indian National Congress was intended to be a political party for all Indians. However, as things turned out, it was mostly a Hindu affair from the very beginning. In its very first session, only two Muslims out of a total of 72 members were present. Alan Hume encouraged the Indian National Congress to be more inclusive and invite more Muslims. However, both the British and the Hindus resisted his ideas. It was becoming very clear that the Indian National Congress was not a political vehicle for Muslims. There were some Muslims, like Sir Syed Ahmed Khan, who believed Muslims should stay out of politics. This attitude was justified by the way the INC ignored Muslim concerns. But there were other Muslims who disagreed with this idea, and they felt that political involvement was absolutely crucial. And this became evident with the partition of Bengal. 
The issue of the partition of Bengal would test the strength of Muslim political influence in India. In 1905, the British decided to partition the province of Bengal, thereby creating a western and eastern flank. The western flank, closer to the modern state of India, this was dominated by Hindus, while the eastern flank, part of the modern state of Bangladesh, was dominated by Muslims. Muslims agreed with the partition as it would give them a majority province, however the Hindus hated it. Hindu members of the Indian National Congress protested the partition of Bengal. They boycotted British goods and facilities. Some Bengali Hindus used violence and terrorism and intimidation tactics. These anti-partition Hindus adopted the song Vande Mataram as their national song. Vande Mataram was a poem praising the Hindu mother goddess and today it is India's national song. Vande Mataram British eventually buckled under this unified pressure from the Hindu nationalists and Bengal was reunified in 1911. For the Muslims of India, this was a significant political defeat. But there were some positive things to come out of this loss. In response to the Hindu activism against the partition of Bengal, the Muslims of India formed their own political party called the All India Muslim League in Dhaka, Bengal in 1906. This All India Muslim League would often find itself at odds with the Indian National Congress. But there's one man who tried to bring them together, and that was Muhammad Ali Jinnah. Muhammad Ali Jinnah, 1876-1948, is known as the father of Pakistan, and he holds the title of Qaidi Azam, or Great Leader. He's often pictured wearing finely tailored suits and a caracol hat. In fact, these hats are also known as Jinnah caps in Pakistan. Muhammad Ali Jinnah was born into a family of wealthy Ismaili Shiite merchants. At the age of 16, he traveled to London to apprentice as a lawyer. While in London, he adopted English liberalism and secularism. In the early 1900s, he got involved in politics, returned to India, and joined the Indian National Congress. He even won a seat as a member of the Indian National Congress in 1909. Four years after that, he joined the All India Muslim League in the hopes that he could bridge the gap between the two parties. In 1918, Muhammad Ali Jinnah married Ratambai Pettit. Now, this was a very controversial marriage because Ratanbai, or Rati as she was known, was 24 years younger than Jinnah was. She was only 18 while he was in his early 40s. 
Even more controversial was the fact that she was from a Zoroastrian family and he was Muslim. She, however, converted to Islam soon after marrying Jinnah and her family was very angry at her for this, not only for marrying Muhammad Ali Jinnah, but also for converting to Islam. As a result, she was excommunicated from the Zoroastrian community. The couple had their first and only child, Dinah Jinnah, who was born in 1919. Meanwhile, World War I was coming to a close and Indians began to demand more independence from Britain. Most British politicians were against immediate independence. There were some who preferred gradual independence, but there were others, like Winston Churchill, who was absolutely against any form of independence for India. And it was around this time that a lawyer named Mohandas Gandhi began his Satyangraha movement. This movement promoted peaceful civil disobedience and most of the Hindus of India embraced Gandhi's movement and his tactics. They saw him as a spiritual leader and a hero. In fact, even many Muslim Indians also took part in his movement. And Gandhi, he promised to support the Khilafat movement in exchange for Muslim support. The Khilafat movement was intended to preserve the Islamic Caliphate after the ultimate Ottoman defeat in World War I. However, the Khilafat movement failed when Kamal Ataturk abolished the Caliphate in 1924. While Gandhi's movement was starting to gain steam, Muhammad Ali Jinnah's political career and his life was running into trouble. He was unable to bring the Indian National Congress and the Muslim League any closer together. In fact, they disagreed now more than they ever had. Jinnah also disagreed with Gandhi's political tactics. He did not support the Khilafat movement. Muhammad Ali Jinnah also did not support Gandhi's civil disobedience movement. He felt that independence from Britain should be obtained through legislation and constitution, not by breaking the law. Ultimately, Gandhi's views won out and Jinnah's career came to a standstill. The Indian National Congress fully adopted Satyagraha from Gandhi. When Jinnah tried to speak out against Satyagraha, he was booed and shouted off the stage. And then he was nearly assaulted by another Muslim politician. Muhammad Ali Jinnah finally resigned from the Indian National Congress in 1920, but he kept his position as president of the All India Muslim League. But Jinnah's troubles did not end there. After stepping down from the Indian National Congress, he had lost most of his political influence. Even though he was president of the All India Muslim League, the All India Muslim League was very small and weak compared to the Indian National Congress. The British did not recognize the League as a representative of Indian Muslims, and the Indian National Congress, for the most part, ignored or snubbed the Muslim League. The Muslim League was also beset with infighting and internal chaos. An example of Jinnah's ineffectiveness during this period of time was how the British and the Indian National Congress completely ignored his 14 points. 
Muhammad Ali Jinnah drew up a list of demands which were meant to protect the political rights of Muslims in India, and this became known as his 14 points. He submitted his ideas to be included in a report that the Indian National Congress was preparing for political reform in India. However, when the Indian National Congress presented the report to the British, none of Jinnah's 14 points were included. On top of Jinnah's political career falling apart, his marriage also began to crumble. The relationship with his wife Ruddy had started to go bad. In the beginning, their relationship was very good. Muhammad Ali Jinnah was a wealthy lawyer and he could dote on his wife and spend time with her and give her whatever she wanted. But as he became more involved in politics, he just couldn't give her the attention that she desired. And there was, of course, the stark difference in age between them. He expected her to act more like his idea of a grown woman after their child was born. But when she did not change in the way that he wanted her to, he grew cold and distant from her and just began to ignore her complaints and her frustration. And Muhammad Ali Jinnah even secretly confided to some of his friends that marrying her was a mistake. Rutti began to sink into depression. She had given up everything to be with Muhammad Ali Jinnah. She had given up her family, her religion, and her community to be with him. And now she was spending most of her nights alone with their young daughter. You can hear her frustration in the final letter she wrote to him that expressed her despair. Try and remember me, beloved, as the flower you plucked and not the flower you tread upon. I have suffered much, sweetheart, because I have loved much. The measure of my agony has been in accord to the measure of my love. Rati Jinnah died from an overdose of sleeping pills in February 1929, six months after this letter was written. It is not clear if her death was an accident or a suicide. Devastated by the loss of his wife and with his political career in shambles, Muhammad Ali Jinnah decided to leave India and relocate to London in 1931. He brought his young daughter Dinah with him and he would stay there for the next four years. In the next episode, we're going to see what happens to the All India Muslim League when their leader is not even in India. And as the Indian National Congress expands their political power in India, the Muslim League is going to struggle just to stay relevant. And on top of all that, Hindu nationalism is starting to take root in India. And the Muslims of India are really worried about how they'll be treated in a Hindu majority nation. These concerns would lead some Muslims to explore the possibility of creating an independent Muslim state in the Indian subcontinent. That's next time on the Islamic History Podcast. You've been listening to the Islamic History Podcast and we hope you've enjoyed the show. 
Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, Google, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can get the show notes for this and all the other episodes in this series by visiting islamichistorypodcast.com slash Pakistan. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a five-star rating and review and share it with your friends and family. You can also support the Islamic History Podcast and get access to exclusive shows by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash islamichistory. We have exclusive episodes covering the life of Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, the rebellion of Ibn Zubair, the Crusades, and so much more. If you stay tuned, you'll hear a short clip from one of these exclusive episodes in a few minutes. Special thanks to Brother Zulfikar Sarosh for his research and support of the show, and thanks to all of our Patreon subscribers. Until next time, my name is Mutaki Ismail for the Islamic History Podcast. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Ibn Zubair heard from his mother how the Prophet really wanted to rebuild the Kaaba. And so now I'm going to have to explain to you what all that means. So, as you know, as Muslims, the Kaaba was originally built during the time of Prophet Ibrahim or Abraham and his son Ismail, alayhim salam. And at that time, when it was originally built by Prophet Ibrahim and Ismail, the Kaaba stretched to that curved wall called the Hatim. The Hatim is, if you've seen pictures of the Kaaba, just out, just by the Kaaba, there's a curved wall, like a short curved wall. The Kaaba originally stretched all the way up to that curved wall uh, when it was originally built by uh, Prophet Ibrahim and his son. However, according to the Sira, and we didn't, I don't think we really, I think we did definitely talk about this. This is a famous story. Famous story, you know how there was a flood that damaged the Kaaba in the, in the years before Islam. This was during the Prophet's lifetime, but before he actually had become the Prophet, before he got the message of Islam, when he was, say, in his early 30s, I believe, there was a flood that damaged the Kaaba, and so the Quraysh decided to rebuild the Kaaba, and in doing so, uh, they had to remove the black stone, and then they had to put it back, and then everybody started fighting. They said, well, who can we get to resolve this dispute? And in walks Muhammad, and they have him, um, they ask him what to do about it. And he, of course, he takes off his cloak, they put the ka- put the uh, black stone on top of it, and then they put it back into his place. You know the story, fair, very famous story about the Prophet Wasallam. So you know that story. So during this event, when the Quraysh were rebuilding the Kaaba, they ran out of money and they couldn't build it back to its original length, which was to reach that curved wall, the Hatim. And so they had to cut corners and they built it into the almost perfect cube that it is right now. It's not a perfect cube, but it's very close to it. So they built it into the, into the cubed shape that it is right now. So... After, of course, you know, the Prophet then gets the message, we can go make the Hijrah, uh, Islam comes to Mecca eventually, and the, the Quraysh convert to Islam. And so, after Mecca is conquered by the Prophet and the Muslims, the Aisha, his wife, she heard the Prophet, and there's a very, there are 
famous hadith about this. It's very easy to find. Aisha heard that the prophets say that he wanted to rebuild the Kaaba to its original dimensions, to the original size where it reached to that curved wall as it was during the time of Prophet Ibrahim salam, and even during the prophet's time just before he got the message. And the reason, but the prophet, he was hesitant. He did not do so. He chose not to do so because at this time, the Quraysh had only recently accepted Islam and he didn't want to go around. He didn't want to go and tear down the Kaaba and rebuild it and, and cause a, an uproar in, the, in his people who had only recently accepted Islam. He, he had already destroyed all, the, all, all of their idols and perhaps he thought that rebuilding the Kaaba would have been a bit too much for them to bear and so he left it alone. However, by Ibn Zubair's time, that's not really an issue. Nobody will have a problem. Um, people are strong in their faith. I can't say they would have a problem with the, with the Kaaba being rebuilt, but they're strong in their faith now. They're not weak and just recently converted Muslims by the time Ibn Zubair is around. So Ibn Zubair, he heard this hadith, and he heard it from his mother, who most likely heard it from Aisha, or maybe she heard it from the Prophet himself, Allah knows best. But Nonetheless, Ibn Zubair is aware of the Prophet's desire to rebuild the Kaaba according to its original dimensions. And so with that, Ibn Zubair, and now he had an opportunity to rebuild the Kaaba after the damage from the siege, he goes about rebuilding the Kaaba so that it reaches the Hatim. And so the Kaaba during the time of Ibn Zubair was more rectangular shaped than it is now. And it reached all the way to the Hatim, that low curved brick wall. And he also included two doors in the Kaaba so that people could enter from one side and go out the other. Before this, there was only one door in the Kaaba.